some people think like it's so easy to kind of switch our programming or to switch these things that are within ourselves, but it takes time. It takes patience. Like you were saying, you know, it takes a quality of attention. It takes prioritizing for us to be able to reprogram something that we've been sitting in for a really, really long time. And grace, right? Because we also mm -hmm. live in a society that makes you feel like you should get it. Like when you start, like, what's wrong with me? Like, hold on, wait, like you were in this way for how many years? And you just started this practice like a couple of months ago? Like have grace for yourself. If you know there is something deep inside of you that is yearning to be seen, to be known, and to have expression, if there's something you need to reclaim and remember, maybe it's your power, your purpose, your gifts, this is the podcast for you. Welcome to Reclaiming Ourselves. I'm your host, Sonia Statman, and I'm honored to have three amazing co-hosts, Laura Shook Guzman, Belinda Hahn, and Emily Sikorsi, here with me on this journey to self-discovery. Every week, we're going to help you unravel and remember what it means to reclaim yourself, to own who you are, to recognize your innate worth and greatness. Now, this podcast is a deep dive into self-development, healing, and empowerment. So hold on. Here we go. Hi, and welcome back to Reclaiming Ourselves. I'm so excited today because I have Emily Sikorsi in the house, and we have a special guest. And I'm going to actually pass it over to Emily to introduce our guest and tell you a little bit about the amazing topic that we're going to dive into today. So Emily, welcome. Hello. It's so good to be with you both. And I'm so excited to bring this topic into the conversation. Our guest today is Fatima Mann. Fatima is a special person to me, but outside of that, she's an expert in cultural mindfulness, healing within organizational infrastructures, and human-centered human centered approaches to really touching people's hearts and minds. I would call her a visionary. She's definitely a leader. In addition to those labels, she's also a lawyer, a yoga instructor, and founder of direct and director of community advocacy and healing project. And she does a ton of relief work through that. So it's really incredible. Fatima is, is invited into this conversation today, Sonia, to really kind of dig into this idea of understanding how our racial identity and exploring that plays into reclaiming ourselves. And just speaking for myself personally, this is a journey that I've been on, like many people, you know, most intensely after the murder of George Floyd and mm -hmm. um, have lately just been digging into it deeper and deeper. And I've found that uh, I can't keep separate reclaiming myself and understanding my racial identity, my relationship to privilege, and just the way that artificial constructs have really informed my life. And Fatima has just been an amazing guide for how to push back against those or understand those. And I'm excited to have her with us so we can dig into all this juiciness. So welcome, Fatima. Greetings, beautiful beings. Thank you for having me. Um, again, I hope you all are drinking water and taking care of yourselves. Yeah. And thanks for having me, allowing me to be here with you today. Yay. You're welcome. Thank you for coming. 
Yay. So excited. This is such an important topic. It's something we've kind of tackled a few different ways in this podcast, but, you know, being able to kind of unpack and explore just even our racial identity, right? I think that in and of itself is such an important part of reclaiming. Um, I know when I started to kind of do some of this work myself as well, that I didn't even really ever look at that facet, you know, like I didn't even really identify with a race. I didn't really even have words or expressions or understanding of how that really affected me. And that was a pretty profound exploration and transformation as I started to dive into what that means to me. And maybe that's a really good place to start. Like maybe we can talk about, you know, and I'd love to hear from our guest, what racial identity is and how that significantly impacts the way that we look at ourselves. Um, So racial identity is an artificial construct. It's something that these humans came up with. And in their creation of these constructs created a hierarchy And in this hierarchy, there's those that have and there's those that don't. And with these identities comes these boxes and becomes these stereotypes and these prejudices and these ways of supposed to having to live. And so racial identity as an artificial construct, if it's something that began, it's something that can end, right? Um, And so I look at it as racial identity is, is this imaginative thing that has these rules that we can choose to subscribe to when and if it is benefiting the whole. And if it is not benefiting the whole, then we therefore should not be subscribing to it. So for the sake of this conversation, I subscribe to being a being that the world calls a Black woman. I don't subscribe to the things that they say a Black woman is, though. I don't do, we're not saying that I'm going to be angry. I'm not, I'm not working the Black girl magic, burning myself out thing. I'm not doing none of that. It doesn't mean that I'm not brilliant. It doesn't mean that I don't have things to offer. It just means that I'm not subscribing to what other people say I have to go to this label because they're constructs. These constructs, right? that most of us are not in consensual relationship with, we're living out because we are told we have to, what takes us away from being the beautiful, expansive, wonderful beings that we are because we're, we're trying to live up to this title, to this word, to this racial identity. And it's like, but who are you? Like, who are you? And that is the question I think people... We don't seek to answer. We seek to be the, what does it mean to be a woman? What does it mean to be black? What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be straight? What does it mean to be all these labels? But no, who are you? Because you weren't made in the classroom. No one had to like write a, a thesis and have an hypothesis about you. But all those labels that we just mentioned, someone had to bring to the academy, someone had to test and prove, someone had to then say, these are terms that we're going to call this group. And because we're going to use that term for this group, then blah, 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 blah. Like, that's not you. None of that had anything to do with me or you, or the people listening to this or watching this, right? So racial identity is a, is a concept that many of us subscribe to not consensually and if we reprogram ourselves we recognize that it was someone sold us this false dream that disconnects us from our true reality and if we're disconnected from ourselves then how can we even see the other person in front of us it doesn't matter what body they're in we can't see them if we don't see ourselves and racial identity takes that away from us Mm, yeah that so 
you taught, you mentioned a few times being in consent, out of consent, you threw out that phrase. And I'd love for you to kind of dig into that a little bit more because it's been an idea that has been really transformational for me personally. So can you talk a little bit about being in consent and out of consent? I understand how, you know, there's these frameworks and they are imposed on us, but dig into that a little bit for us. Explain that a little bit more. Most of the time when we think of consent, we think about it in this term of like sexual relationships, right? And mm-hmm. when we're in a we're providing consent, it's that you're asking a person, a person is choosing to engage in that action, right? When we think about consent outside ourselves. Being in consensual relationship with ourselves is asking ourselves questions, right? What do you need? And then listening to yourself and then giving it to yourself. So most of us are not in a consensual relationship because when our bodies say we're hungry, we don't feed it. When our bodies say we're tired, mm-hmm. we don't sleep. When our bodies say we're thirsty, we don't drink. And then we wonder why we get sick. We wonder why we burn out. It's because our bodies have said the choice it needs us to make. And we are going against that choice. So technically, per definition of rape, if we look at it, we rape ourselves all the time. We're constantly doing it. But society says we should for the sake of a paycheck, for the sake of taking care of others, for the sake of changing the world. We should not listen to ourselves. We should not give ourselves what we need because if we do that, then we can't go to work. If we do that, then supposedly the world is going to end. If we choose to take a nap, if we choose to listen to our bodies, when we are in consensual relationship with ourselves, we are aware enough to choose things that don't cause ourselves and others harm, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not harming myself when I feed myself and myself says I'm hungry. Mm-hmm. I'm not harming myself if I rest when my body says it takes it needs a nap. Usually though, society says, cut all that off. Don't do any of those things. Be in attention and not in a harmful relationship with yourself because you're not going to eat when you are hungry. You're not going to rest when you are tired and you're not going to stop and drink water when you are thirsty. So if that is consent just on that basic level, then think about it in these terms of race, right? We can choose to identify to being white or black when it's for the benefit of all. If whiteness is only going to benefit white people, then one doesn't want to subscribe to be white. But if whiteness is like, oh, I'm going to be white and I'm going to use my whiteness to make sure that Everyone has access to these resources. And so now you're in a room where everybody that looks completely not white and white has access to that one thing. That's when whiteness is beneficial. For me, being black is beneficial when I'm in a group of black people. It's not beneficial when I'm in a group of white people. I don't want to be black when I'm in a group of white people. I just want to be Fatima. I don't want you to think about me as black in in that way. And if I am black, I'm black for the sense of reminding your manners, not to do anything else, right? It's not to limit me. It's not to make me small. It's not to steal ideas. It's just to be able to be like, ooh, she's in a black body and that body comes with some trauma and I'm going to be mindful and aware of that. That's it. But other than that, my blackness, this body shouldn't dictate what you say or how you move. You shouldn't say, hey, girlfriend, if you're not saying talking like that to your white friends, don't talk to me like that. Like, it didn't change that. That's an artificial construct. You're Now you're subscribing to what you think blackness is. I don't want to subscribe to that. I want you to subscribe to who I am. If you subscribe to the human, that means you get to know me. So being in consent is like, who are you, Fatima? Like, 
that's a consensual. Now you're in a consensual relationship with me as a person and not this title of what it means to be a black woman. But you can't get there if you're not in a consensual relationship with yourself. So me saying, hey, yeah. be in consent with me. If you're not feeding you when you're hungry, if you're not drinking water when you're thirsty, you can't even dare to honor me when I'm like, can we have a consensual relationship here? And can you see me for me? Can you ask me questions? Can you engage with me from this place of consent? It's a very hard concept then. Yeah. So then it feels like what's so important is that work that we do with ourselves, that relationship to ourselves, so that we can have more care and awareness and support for others. And, you know, I just think that's such an important point to really pull out on. I, I mean, I've noticed over the years, right, since George Floyd, since a lot of this awareness kind of flooded in that a lot of people are performing a lot of white people are performing and trying to do all the right things outside of themselves, but there still isn't the development, the personal development, the relationship internally to really make a significant change, right? It's performative. It's to be good, to, you know, be, be good enough, but it's not the real work that's required for the transformation. So for me, it was Breonna Taylor, right? When, when Breonna Taylor died, and she was in her bed and the world didn't storm, the world didn't burn, the world didn't see that. Like the bed is the safest place one can be outside your mother's womb, really, like in my eyes, right? Where else is safer? And this black woman who was a person that served her community, right? Like when she was killed and I didn't see the same uproar from people, white bodies, black bodies, I meditated and I was like, okay, so, how do we get people to see themselves in bodies like mine, right? When someone that looks like me dies or goes missing, there's the same uproar. How do you get someone to see me when they see themselves? And I was like, oh, well, most people don't see themselves, so they definitely can't see you, mm -hmm. right? Like most people have no idea. Mm -hmm. yeah. The being that they look at in the mirror every single day, they don't know how amazing that person is. They don't know how beautiful and wonderful the person is. They don't know how great the world is because that person that is looking back at them in the mirror exists. Most people have no idea. So they can't never, ever, ever see me. And they can't see the wonder and joy in themselves. If all they see is the darkness and the guilt and the shame in themselves, that is all they're going to see in me. So the work shifted from being cognitive to being what people most call trauma-informed, I like to say healing-centered, and really getting people to recognize who you are is okay, be that person, so that if you can see you, you can see me. You can see Brianna King, yes. Brianna Taylor, you can see Sandra Bland, you can see all these beings that identify as Black women, whether they're Black women identify as being trans or cisgender, whoever, Black women in general, people forget about us. And so this work for me is like, see me when you see you. And how do you do that if you can't see yourself? Yes. So it begins with, with seeing yourself and embracing yourself. And I think um, I'll speak as a white body woman, you know, you're talking about consent earlier. I know I was programmed to ignore myself, you know, ignore when I was tired, just like you're saying, ignore when I was hungry, ignore when I really wanted to do to head left, but I knew that the road was go right. So I reoriented my course for that in order to get like external validation. And so as I started deconstructing that, 
it was surprisingly difficult. Like it sounds so simple to just be in consent with yourself, but I found it to be, it's simple, but not easy, right? To, to pause. Mm -hmm. And, um, I mean, I'm a people pleaser. I want to say yes. And I, and I want to, and I am, um, very um, intuitive and emotional. And so I want to make sure everyone around me is okay. I want to almost provide for other people's consent before providing for my own. <laughs> so do you find, even though it's a simple concept, do you find that people struggle and what would you like offer as a good way to kind of start that process of getting more in consent with yourself as a process mm -hmm. of reclaiming kind of who you are? I'm reading this book by Thich Nhat Hanh called Anger, How to Cool the Flames. And mm. He talks about how we put so much time and energy investing in getting degrees and making money, but we don't put the same time and energy into relationships. So we'll invest. Like, I, I got a law degree. So when I read that, I was like, oh, that hurt. I put all this time into getting this degree, and I cannot say that I've ever put that much time into any kind of relationship, ever. And reading that is like practices, right? We've been conditioned that we'll, we'll go to practice for an, whatever artificial thing man has made up for us to play, a sport, right? We'll study these things in the library. But when we are talking about retraining ourselves, like alternating our consciousness, it's this like, whew, this lofty idea. But it's no, we've just been conditioned to put that same time and energy into degrees and money and not relationships. And relationship, such with us. Being in relationship with ourselves, we don't invest time and energy into that. And that's all it is. It's when we create time and energy in the day to practice new ways of being and thinking and speaking, and we continuously do it, it doesn't become as hard because now it's a practice. What we like to do, we become a microwave like mentality. We want like a home cooked meal, like in microwave time, it don't make sense. I'll wait two hours. <laughs> I'll, I'll wait 12 hours. If it's going to be amazing, it's from scratch. I'll wait the time it takes to get the meal I want. But we're not, we don't, we're in a society that doesn't want to do that. So to me, I don't think it's hard. It's discipline, right? It's a practice. That's right. It's being mindful. Mm -hmm. And we are such a mindless society. And we don't want to be mindful. Mm -hmm. To be mindful is work, but is it? Because again, we're getting a degree. We're going to school. We want to get certified in something. We want to get that promotion. We want to do whatever. We'll put that time and energy into it. But when it comes to relating to humans, again, us first, being the human, we don't got time for it. It's too hard. But so what I like to invite people to do is do for yourself the way you do for others. And people be looking at me and I'm like, I know, right? But most times, especially feminine beings, especially women, we'll do for others in ways that we would not dare do for ourselves. So now it's like, mm -hmm. you already know how to do it. Just do it for yourself. That's it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, they say it takes, what, 3,000 repetitions to be an embodied practice, right? So it's like that consistent practice is what re-shifts us, it retrains us, it reprograms the brain and the neurons and the nervous system. 
3,000 repetitions, right? We have so many embodied practices that we've been trained in for decades, for years, right? The older we've been. And I think some people think like it's so easy to kind of switch our programming or to switch these things that are within ourselves, but it takes time. It takes patience. Like you were saying, you know, it takes a quality of attention. It takes prioritizing for us to be able to reprogram something that we've been sitting in for a really, really long time. And grace, right? Because we also Mm -hmm. live in a society that makes you feel like you should get it. Like when you start, like, what's wrong with me? Like, hold on, wait, like you were this way for how many years? And you just started this practice like a couple of months ago? Like, have grace for yourself. You're not going to get to the place of being a certain way if you were this way longer than like that, right? If you just learned it today, mm-hmm. give yourself some grace and we don't have enough grace for ourselves when we cause harm or when we like wrong someone or wronged or whatever, we just, we live in a cutoff culture, including ourselves. We'll cut mm-hmm. ourselves from our, off from ourselves because we didn't do the thing that we thought we should do. And it's like, hold on, you just, did you just dog out yourself? Like, why are you talking about yourself like that? It's okay, you know? So I feel like grace and compassion for self is paramount because again, you can't give it to anybody else mm-hmm. if you don't have it. But if you're learning new things and you're and, and new things of ways of thinking and speaking and being, having grace for the bumps in the road and the, and the times you stump your toe and the times you didn't say that thing right is just as important as learning the practice. It's like, if you can't practice grace, don't practice this right now because <laughs> you're gonna cause yourself harm. And that's not fair to you. Yeah. I mean, that's so much that part of our humanity, right, is that understanding that we make mistakes, that we, you know, do things that harm ourselves and others. And so it isn't about not making any mistakes or not doing those things. It's about, you know, recognizing and being more mindful when they happen, having compassion and love for ourselves when we do make mistakes and, you know, staying connected. I mean, I think we have such a disconnection to ourselves and to our bodies and to what we feel. And that's what we're taught is a whole society is to stay disconnected. And then it's hard to have compassion. It's hard to have empathy. And so, so much, I think of that, the path is reconnecting to ourselves. Like I've done a lot of um, sort of trauma-informed healing work, right? And education. And, you know, they talk a lot about how emotional intelligence is that ability to be with whatever we're feeling. So it's not not feeling anything and it's not always being happy and it's not not making any mistakes. It's just allowing yourself the capacity to be with what shows up, to be with the mistakes you make, to be with the way that, you know, you have your unconscious biases or whatever happens. It's to be with those things and be more mindful and connected to ourselves. And I think that's, you know, a really important part of what you're talking about. And where do people start in that path to reconnecting to themselves? Outside of connecting with me? Um, (laughs) Honestly, um, asking yourself questions like, who am I? What do I want? What do I need? And giving yourself time to ask and answer, right? Like not just, Mm -hmm. I'm going to ask myself, no, ask, journal it, think it out, talk Mm -hmm. it out. Like, who am I? What do I want? What is that person that I want to be? How does that person talk? How does that person think? What does that person wear? What does that person listen to? What kind of music? What kind of words does that person use, right? 
Because if you're not asking yourself these questions, then you're just out here doing things. And then the intent may be one thing, but the impact sucks because you're just out here. And you're not out here knowing what it is that you're really conjuring, what it is that you're really manifesting. Because a lot of times, we, are, we speak life or death with our tongue. So we're not speaking what we want to be true. And we don't recognize that we are creating these realities because we haven't asked ourselves these questions and answered these questions. And so asking these questions are very, very important. Who am I? What do I want? What, and then what did that like? And then why do I think, why do I think this way? Why am I doing this? Asking the what's, the where's, the why's, where did I get this from? Am I okay with acting like this? Asking these questions for me came from like the practice of Buddhism and mindfulness practices and having this right understanding of self. And if you have your right understanding of self, which allows you to like find that understanding in others. But we don't, we're not in a society that says, ask questions. Ask yourself questions every single day. Mm -hmm. What do you want your day to look like? How do I want to feel today? How do I want to like mm -hmm. every single day? And we don't do that. So I think that's where to start is like really asking and answering and then living it. So not just saying, who am I? It's like, okay, if I'm, I'm an Aquarius, I am the Aquarian on all of my charts. I am an air sign. I act like an air sign. I don't like planning things. I don't do it. Right. That's who I am. Like I am like the air. I flow like the air. Things, plans happen and they do it. Right. So when I'm talking to people, I tell people, listen, that's not my strong part. My strong part is not planning and doing things. In my personal life, you don't want me to, mm -mm, I'm not the one. Because I just go by the seat of my pants. I'm an air sign. That's who I am. Mm. So I can talk to people from this place of knowing that they may get mad because I'm not going to plan. And I'm going by the seats of my pants. And I can have compassion for them mm. because... I'm out here being an air sign and they, they don't like that. And I'm like, oh, okay, right? Because I know I'm, how I'm showing up in the world and I can see that that impacts other people. But if we don't know how we show up in the world, we can't see that that impacts people and have compassion because they're, they're impacted by how we choose to show up in the world. So it all starts with us. Mm. How do I want to show up in the world? Yeah. Who am I? Yeah. Yeah, that. you talked about intent and impact and those being in alignment, right? And you just said it, you know, at the very end there that if we don't know how we, who we are, how can we understand the impact that we have on others? And I think that's really powerful. I, I think too, and that once people start learning these concepts and and undoing the constraints that have kept us from knowing ourselves better. There is this excitement that grows and like a desire to want to share that with others. And that can kind of sometimes lean into, you know, what Sonia was talking about with being performative, right? So we've talked about harm versus discomfort and how that plays into things. Going out and sharing, you know, your own process of, of understanding your own identity and being in consent maybe difficult for people to, to absorb if you're just kind of coming at them. So can you talk a little bit about causing discomfort versus causing harm and how to know, because I have a, you know, I have kind of a, I used to have a re more of a reaction to like, Oh, that made them uncomfortable. And so maybe that's a sign to stop or to change something I'm doing. But I've learned that when I'm grounded and what I'm doing, 
um, it's okay to cause discomfort. So I would love for you to share a little bit about discomfort versus harm. So um, I've been learning with consent, right? When we are in a consensual relationship, we don't cause harm. Most times harm is caused because no one consented on the engagement. And now you're in an experience that parties did not agree to be in. So mm-hmm. harm, when one, when there's a harm, healing has to happen. There has to be like some, some reconciliation, some alignment, some realization. That's like harm. There has to be some healing. Discomfort is just a shift, right? And so being able to establish like, when one is sitting in a chair and you've been sitting for a long time and you get uncomfortable, you just shift and now you're, you're comfortable again, right? Like that's being uncomfortable. A harm happens is when you're sitting there for so long, now you need physical therapy, right? Because now there's a harm that's been caused. You've been in this spot for so long, but your body was harmed from it, right? It, was, it wasn't in moderation. You, you just was there and now you have to have some healing because of how long you sat in that chair in that position. A lot of times when we talk about race or these things of artificial constructs, people are really uncomfortable, but there isn't harm caused. And they're uncomfortable because we usually don't have space to have really, like, we really don't, we don't have space to have uncomfortable conversations, nor do we have the tools and practices to be in that space in a regulated nervous system and to not take mm-hmm. things personally and just to be able to talk about the impacts of the artificial constructs that exists in a lot of people's realities from a place that honors, oh, this is just uncomfortable, but I'm not being harmed here. The harm comes if, if I start talking about you as a person, if I'm talking about whiteness and you decided to take it personally, that ain't my problem. You're uncomfortable. If I am talking mm-hmm. about you specific as a white person, I'm causing harm now because now I'm projecting onto you what I'm saying, and it has nothing to do with you. I'm talking about this the concept of whiteness that may impact you, but has nothing to do with you as an individual. And most times, we don't know the difference, and especially when we're talking about these concepts. So when we start talking about Mm -hmm. these things that are politically correct conversations or these PC things, people are like, oh, you're causing harm. No, I'm not. I'm not causing harm. We are not conditioned to have these conversations. And most of us aren't grounded in our bodies. So when we look to have these conversations, we go into fight, flight, freeze response instead of being able to take Mm -hmm. deep breaths and realize this has nothing to do with me, right? And so when we... For me, when when I guide people through space about race, we don't really even talk about like white. We don't use words like white supremacy or any of these things, because I don't want to be. I don't want people to be triggered, right? I want you to be in your bodies and be regulated and know that I see you as a person. And when we start talking about these concepts, they're just concepts that you're going to be uncomfortable with. But I'm not trying to harm you. But if we don't start with the consent part and that and what is harm, what is discomfort, we can't even talk about race. Because I need people to get that love. You're going to be really uncomfortable. I'm going to say something that you're going to be like, did she just say that to my face? Yes. On purpose. I did. And we can take deep breaths and we can pause and we can sit in it. And if you have tears, I don't care about your tears because you need to, you need to be able to move through that. But your tears are because you're uncomfortable. You're not accustomed to being uncomfortable. Your tears aren't because 
I hurt you, right? And knowing that you can, and discomfort with discomfort, there's love, there's nurturing, there's care there. There was, there was a container where you were like, oh, this is so uncomfortable, but ooh, it feels good. I call it being told off by a grandma. You know, when grandmas tell you about yourself, and you know, I don't care what race you are, what identity, grandmas, old ladies have the ability to tell you about yourself in the sweetest way. You're like, did she just, did she just tell me? Yes, she did. But wasn't it so sweet? Well, didn't she make you feel good about it? That's that. That's what discomfort yeah. is. When we have these conversations, mm. it's with that kind of love, that kind of sweetness, that kind of reality. When we're in harm, that, that sweetness isn't there. That presence isn't there. That nurturing isn't there. That presence and like being mindful isn't there. And most mm-hmm. times when people claim to be harmed, I'm like, Mm-mm. ask yourself, why do I feel harmed? What about what was said was harmful? And most times it wasn't. It was just they, had, they were triggered, wasn't grounded in their bodies, and wasn't guided through the difference of being harmed and being uncomfortable. And when we talk about race, that has to be a part of the conversation. Yes, I so agree. I mean, a lot of times I talk about, you know, in diversity work, that's so much like in corporate environments and all these different places where a lot of people are starting to sort of bring attention to work. It's so important to resource people in terms of having a connection to understanding themselves, even recognizing they have a nervous system and what happens with that, what it looks like activated, what looks like not activated. Like there's so many of these resourcing tools that I feel like we're not putting into place so that we can have these more uncomfortable conversations, these very important conversations. But most people aren't even talking about that. They're not even including the body in so much of this work. I love, I don't know if you know Stacey Haynes. Have you ever heard of Stacey Haynes? No. She she does a lot of work sort of in this intersection between personal development and trauma healing and social um, justice, right? So it's like there there's like such an important inter- interconnection between those two things. And, you know, she's talks a lot about how, you know, being able to, do the personal development work in a way that brings sort of connection and regulation and all of these things allows us to really have more impact in social justice work and social justice work that's informed in trauma, right, ha- is able to, you know, not harm, but be able to create these really kind of um, discomfort in in stories and in these conversations. And I think that this intersection is such an important piece. And it sounds like that's a lot of the work you are doing as well with that kind of interconnection between that personal development and that social context and social justice. And um, yeah, I just think it's really, really important. So I thank you. I, I look Stacey hands up because I had no idea what someone else was doing it. So I graduated law school in 2018 got into trauma-informed practices. I had known about being trauma-informed. I used to work at a child advocacy center, but like becoming someone Mm -hmm. that was um, trained to hold space in a trauma-informed way. I didn't start until 2018. And then I got into trauma-conscious yoga, but I was organizing around Sandra Bland and I had been doing police brutality work. And I recognized that I was leading from from a traumatized perspective. I was leading from a place of my nervous system 
was always in a fight. I was like always in fight because we're doing police brutality work. I'm writing policy that helps yeah. us like helping change things. I'm doing disaster relief work around a specific group of people. And I'm like, oh, we're all traumatized. So it was about 2019, I started bringing, like there was every meeting that I guide, there's a regulation of the nervous system. We do breath work because we all need to be in like our bodies in the here and now. And I realized that as I started to heal my own trauma and move from a regulated nervous system, I saw all the humans that were involved in what was going on, right? So police officers are human beings and they are human beings that see really horrible things every single day. And they don't have access to trauma-informed therapy. Like after police Mm -hmm. do what they do, their insurance doesn't cover them getting the actual assistance they need, mind blown. Because now I see Mm -hmm. that if this human is traumatized, then they're moving and making decisions from this deregulated nervous system, which means that they're not making really good decisions. I would have never have seen that if I didn't know that how trauma shows up in the body and how all humans have trauma and there's ways in which we can advocate from a trauma-informed perspective and getting more leaders to do trauma-informed healing work, right? Like I started loving healing. One of the reasons we started it was so that we can do retreats and stuff for leaders and activists because most of us have vicarious trauma. We're, we're working with families that are experiencing so much. Mothers who lose their children to police brutality, there's no retreats for them. I know Sandra Bland's mother and other mothers who there was no space for them to go to grieve and get trauma-informed care because they're, they're, they're experiencing direct and informal trauma. But unfortunately, this is, where, this is where the race thing comes in. Most trauma-informed practices are open to white-bodied people. And they cost prices that a lot of people that look like me, we can't afford to pay. Yeah. That's why the work you're doing is so important. I would love to hear more about the work you're doing and how people can access you and, you know, just to learn more about, you know, what you're offering the world and, and how our listeners can connect. Well, thank you for asking. Well, I'm one half of Loving Healing Work. Um, we are a consulting, training, and a retreat space, kind of all in one. So we help businesses, organizations, people uh, expand and transform their lives through cultural mindful healing and human-centered experiences. Um, we have literary book experiences. Um, we help set up like diversity, equity, and inclusion work, but um, we like to call it being uh, how to mitigate harm, how to be culturally mindful, um, and then bringing that into policy. So getting to use my law degree and like, if you want to have heart-centered practices on paper for your organization or business, we help you create that. Um, We spend time with you developing different ways of containing conversations and creating culture within your business and organization. And also, I like to call it how to leverage white privilege, but people that identify as being white who know that they have white privilege wanting to do more and expand on how um, we really work with, with, with white bodies to do that is how do we talk about race from this place mm-hmm. of no one is the victim or villain. Everyone is actually the victim. No one wins with racism. No one wins with these hierarchies and that That's being right. love work. And so I feel like we do racial healing work is really what we do. 
and we take the diversity, equity, inclusion, and we bring it into the intrapersonal. Like it's more of, of who you are. Um, and then we utilize our business acumen and our the law acumen to put it into an actual infrastructure. So now it's in your business. So if you, so now what they will say, now it's sustainable. Mm. Now that if, when you're not there, that practice will always be there. Um, and then really centering the people that take care of people, like training and coaching and consulting, those that are consultants, those that are um, the spiritual leaders and the healers, like creating space for those people to be seen and heard mm. um, and to break down and unravel. Because a lot of times leaders, whether it's CEOs, directors, don't really get spaces to be people and to heal and ask questions and to break down because there's so many people counting on them. So we like to really create space for individuals who are in these leadership roles, who also need space to talk to other leaders who are experiencing trauma, experiencing life, but don't have space to experience it. Um, because loving healing work and love and healing take work. We have love and healing work. I love and that. Sonia, it is, uh, I am, have gone through how to leverage white privilege and love and healing work. And I just want to say that it has been just so profoundly nourishing, challenging, <laughs> discomforting <laughs> and uncomforting um, and change-making for, for me. And as I said at the, at the beginning of this conversation, it has also been very much a part of reclaiming myself um, who I am at my purest, um, at my, at my best, at my most integral. And I think that we can do work on ourselves and we can explore ourselves and we can try to bring ourselves back together. But if we're not then applying that to the world around us and helping to deconstruct some of the very harmful constructs in the world, then I think we're just missing, we're missing huge opportunity. And so I think that this conversation is so important as we explore how we reclaim who we are. And I'm so honored that Fatima joined us today. Yes. Thank you so much, Fatima. Any, anything else you'd like to, as we kind of wrap up our episode today, anything else you'd kind of like to finish off with before we close? I'd say follow us on social media, sign up for our newsletter at Loving Healing Work, and then also take care of yourself. Like you're the most important person. Like you are the most important everything. And so part of reclaiming oneself is honoring that you deserve you. You deserve to give you all the love and attention and time. And that's not being self-centered. That's self-love. Because again, you can't give what you don't have. So if you can give yourself love and be full of love for yourself, then you already know you can love somebody else. So I just invite people to honor and love on themselves because they deserve it. They deserve to drink water. You deserve to eat. You deserve to rest. It's your birthright. Thank you so much. And thank you both for joining us. And thank you listeners for being here. And I'll make sure to have all of Fatima's information in the show notes so that you can click the links and check her out. And I really appreciate you all. And we'll see you next week. Hey, it's Emily. I hope something from our conversation today inspired you. And if you find yourself curious about my work, about intrinsic branding, or about Root and River, I invite you to head over to rootandriver.com where you can sign up for our newsletter or you can read some of our free content. Hope to see you there.